On our season three premiere, we talked to visual artist and Kentucky native Noel W. Anderson about his solo exhibit, Heaviest the Crown, now showing at the Telfair Museum in Savannah, Georgia. Anderson's manipulated images printed on large, distressed tapestries, photos, and vintage ebony magazine advertisements asked us to wrestle with where we stand at the intersection of race and access. This exhibit is part of Telfair Museum's Legacy of Slavery in Savannah initiative, a multi-year project to consider how the legacies of slavery still manifest in the city of Savannah. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. And this is the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Don't go away. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. This is our inaugural episode of the year. Yes, that is right. We are starting big. And we're starting fresh and we're starting brand new. We have a very special guest. We're changing things up here at Vulgar. We are branching out. We're spreading our wings. And we are so glad that we have the opportunity to introduce to you our guest. His name is Noel W. Anderson. Uh, He has received an MFA from Indiana University in printmaking and an MFA from Yale University in sculpture. He is the area head of printmaking in NYU's Steinhardt Department of Art and Art Professions. His exhibit, Heavy is the Crown, is part of the Telfair Museum's Legacy of Slavery in Savannah Initiative a multi-year project which engages local Savannians, artists, scholars, and activists to consider how the legacies of slavery still manifest in our city. Thank you so much. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Oh, I'm all right. Thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. We appreciate having you on and, and, and entering into this conversation with us. We were struck by your work. We went uh, Denny and I we went to Savannah for my birthday back in October it was like pulling teeth I'm like but let's just go <laughs> I had never been to Savannah and I didn't mm-hmm. quite we didn't you know we were like trying to figure out what we were going to do when we got there and one thing that I always like to do is to go to art museums and just see what's out there no matter where it is that I go we want to preface this conversation by letting you know that we are both like novice we have no clue when it comes to art but we just like looking at it and being a part of it and experiencing whatever it is that is on the walls and when we walked into that museum I told Veronica we gotta find this man (laughs) (laughs) we gotta talk to him we gotta do it Um, a lot of people been trying to find me for years I just keep ducking and diving well, we found you today and uh, so let's get on into it upon entering into your exhibit to the left of the door before mm-hmm. you go right into the meat of it we see a bookshelf 
and it's comprised of books such as My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minakim, In the Break, The Aesthetics of the Black Radical Tradition by Fred Moten, and A Testament of Hope, the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. Outside of being inspired by work of artists that preceded you, how do these books inform you of what you should create or how you should approach the pieces that you created in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question because um, it comes in stages, right? So the, the first text, what was the first text? It wasn't Moten. My Grandmother's was, Hand. Ah, right. So it actually comes in stages. It started with, uh, it would start with someone like King Jr. and trying to take whatever his philosophical principle of love is and figure out how to apply that materially, right? Um, because the work I make, Primarily, primarily are uh, woven tapestries uh, that use images from like FBI and CIA of, of the subjugation of usually black men um, or African-American men. Um, and there's a particular kind of way those images uh, disabuse black men and, and peoples of color in general of humanity, right? And I, I think that when I read someone like uh, King Jr. or I read uh, My Grandmother's Hands because that is very therapeutic, um, it allows me to approach the image as if it's a real body and care for it in a kind of way that I think is aligned with certain kind of philosophical principles, right? But then I, I reach a point where I'm like, but this isn't this isn't doing enough for me. Where can I go? And then I reach for a Fred Moten and it I, I can read one chapter, which quite frankly is just the introduction. Um, I've read that thing for for what is it, five years. And every time I go back to it, I'm like, oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. Like I've destroyed books. I've, I've, I've bought that book probably four or five times. And every time I just keep destroying the same chapter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like you know, why, what, what, what does it profit someone to have 500 books and ain't read none of them and you got five and you read them over and over again? You know, that's a certain kind of knowledge, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, they really have a way of taking me, uh, or at least Moten has a way of taking me beyond uh, traditional representation. How did you right. find yourself in, in the art world? Because when we were doing a deep dive on you, like you even mentioned it, your dad, your father was an MIT in the 50s. So you, so you were, you know, in that, in that space of probably, like Veronica said, everybody that goes to MIT are geniuses, so. Uh, yeah, I don't know about that. He was just very focused he was a tough son of a bitch. Today's his birthday. Oh, happy birthday. birthday. Listen, he on the other side. He on the other side loving it. He we like the we boy cherish our ancestors. So happy Ain't that birthday. the truth? That's what I tell everybody. I say, I'm, I'm just trying to live a life so when I go home, they all say you did well. That's all That's I'm trying right. to do. Um, but anyway, sorry. Uh, so the joke is I found myself in the art world scared, and I still am. Uh, that's a joke uh, because I didn't when I graduated from grad school uh, at Yale, everybody was moving to the city. Everybody's moving to New York. And I, I'm, I'm a little boy uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. I was so afraid. Uh, literally, I, I packed my bags and went back to the south. I went to and taught it. Well, I, I went I went back to to uh, the south in the sense that I went I moved to Nashville for the person I was dating at the time. And the first thing I did was I got a job uh, working at a YMCA. You know, um, and that required no mental responsibility. So I could just think about making art all day. Mm. It was quite it was quite nice, you know. Um, 
So I found myself in the art world circuitously by working with a dealer uh, who's now passed away, but a friend of mine, Jack Tilton. And he, you know, he, I said at his funeral, he, he, he saw something in me that nobody else could really see. Mm. You know, he saw a particular kind of value in the objects that I was making at the time when I was in, in, at Yale that not everybody really could see. You know, I particularly remember uh, he came to my studio, one of my friends who's a great artist, Philandis uh, Timms, um, he, he brought him over to my studio and he tried to put me on. And, you know, I'm young and, and naive. I'm like, who this white man? <laughs> you know? And he, he tried to talk to me. And, well, he has a little camera on his, uh, you know, at that time, you have a little camera around your neck, like a fucking tourist. And I was just like, who this white man? Why is he here? And I looked at Philanders and I was like, I'm trying to work. You know, it was a it was like a Wednesday after, or, or, or no, it was like a Sunday evening. I was like, I done kicked everybody else out. All I'm trying to do is work, you know? And because I pushed him away, it drew him closer, mm. right? And I remember, and this is the point, I remember particularly in my studio that Sunday night, he pulled his little camera out and photographed something I had leaning in a trash can. Now, I wasn't throwing that object away, but he was the only one who could see that there was value in the object that I knew was there. I was just placing it there so I could get it off of the table, you know? Um, and that gave me a sense that I could possibly do this art thing. Right. Um, and it's been a struggle for me, if I could be honest with you. It's been a hell of a struggle because I, I'm not the, I don't really like to go out all the time. You know, uh, I guess I get social anxiety sometimes, you know, I get in spaces where I'm like, I should be I should be flourishing. But, you know, I, I want to withdraw. Um, and and it, and quite frankly, it's because of texts like, you know, uh, my grandma's hands or uh, body keeps the score. Uh, and also the fact that I do personal therapy as well as couples therapy uh and my therapist my personal therapist is a is a black woman that that is i can't i cannot praise that enough if i'm gonna be honest with you because mm -hmm. she cuts through the bullshit <laughs> she don't play and i love it and it's not like an attitude it's like well, okay when she says it's so pleasant she's like well okay no well that's one way to frame it mm. you know um so all of those things have given me this kind of sense that okay i can i can make this happen and I think therapy, quite frankly, is the one thing that has allowed me to emerge out of COVID more confident and more excited about where the work is going mm -hmm. and where I am going as a person. That's I think that's more important, to be honest with you. So what is this process of uh, creating the exhibit like heavy as the crown? Does the total concept comes first before the pieces or does the pieces come first? And how did you decide that which pieces would go into the final exhibit? Sure, sure, sure. Um, it's weird because usually it happens with wordplay. Um, so I did a show, uh, my first muse museum solo, uh, Black Origin Moment. Uh, I did that at the, I did, I did two, two iterations. I did it once at the Contemporary Art Center in Cincinnati. And then I did another iteration at the Hunter Museum of American Art in Chattanooga, Tennessee. <clears throat> and I created a couple of new works for that. And one of them was a large scale tapestry that that wasn't stretched like a painting, but was draped kind of like this artist named Sam Gilliam, who just kind of like ties some knots at three or four points and then drapes it. Um, and I really enjoyed how the image got lost inside the folds. But then when I stepped back, I said, well, holy shit, the way it's hanging it looks like a crown. Hmm. And it started there. And then I remember I went uh, a, a few weeks later, uh, a curator from Savannah, you know, DM me, and I, I really know what DM is at the time because I really wasn't using IG the way I'm trying to use it now. 
humble flex and a terrible flex. <laughs> wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Yeah. Um, it just so happened that this curator DM me and said, yo, I love to work. I'd love to do a show. And I was like, boom, I already got a title. And they were like, what? I was like, heavy as the crown. And I just figured it out from there. So once I had the title, I figured, well, what is a crown? How does it function? Um, and I, I went through all the kind of wordplay iterations. It sits on the head. Uh, um, it's a metonym. It's metonymic. Uh, it's a stand-in. I went to some weird places. Um, and then I thought, but wait a minute, heavy is the crown, the king wears the crown. Oh, we got at least one king. And then I found the two. I'm always looking for a parody to contra to create a, a contention. I'm always looking for the opposite of the thing so that there can be some kind of uh, friction in the show. So, you know, so that 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 happened with that show. And then, quite frankly, some of those objects were already made. And then some of the other objects I uh, started to make in relation to it, uh, specifically there's that object. Uh, it's like this big ball of dirt. It's uh, it hangs on the threshold of the in the doorway. Yes. I mean, let's go there, y'all. Well, let's look. Someone describe that for the kid. Let's describe it. What y'all see? You know, <laughs> she'll describe it. I, I I'm glad you brought this piece up because that piece also we'll probably talk about it a little bit later if not now um your your mlk piece that's by the bathroom yes both of those were surprises because like you know we had to go to the bathroom and then you're coming around you're like what why is there this piece here right right? and then as we're exiting to leave out of the the exhibit we see that corner piece on the Mm -hmm. side of the wall and I'm like, that's such an unusual spot to put a piece. That mm-hmm. I didn't notice going in because the first thing I noticed were those books. But to see mm-hmm. that piece coming out, it made me stop. And I'm just like, why? Now we can ask you, why did you decide to put it right there? All right. So, um, so when I did a tour, because usually what I do when I get the opportunity to do an exhibition, I will require a, 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 a campus tour. So they'll fly me down. Um, yeah. Um, and they, they flew me down to do a kind of walkthrough of the campus and they took me over. I didn't realize at the time, uh, really that they, that what it really meant for them to have these slave quarters on campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I, I grew up in Kentucky and, you know, field trips were, were, were two plantations, you know, we took field trips to plantations. They coded it as something else, but I was like, wait a minute, this, these, that big house up there and these shabby ass shacks down here that has all the symptoms of a plantation. It may not be a plantation, but it has all the symptoms of a plantation. <laughs> Hello. Um, but yeah, I remember going in there and just feeling the energy of the uh, the slave quarters. And I said, what is this blue paint on the wall? And we had this conversation about Hank Blue. And I said, okay, Hank Blue. Okay. And immediately I was like, I'm just going to have somebody make that for me. Mm. Um, so I, I said, look, can you all photograph this color or something and get it to the paint store? I want the whole space painted in that blue. Right. Um, so then when I when I when I hit that hate blue thing, I start doing some research and start really reading about uh, or rereading about uh, African-American folk beliefs, you know, that emerge in slavery, but come, you know, directly from the motherland. Oh, by way of the mothership. Oh, that's the connection. Flashlight. Yeah. Now I lay me down to sleep. There we go. So I saw all that and I said to myself, um, what, what way can I bring that, that, 
these these folk beliefs into the narrative. And I read this portion that was about uh, mirrors and reflections and doubling and everything in my work is about mirrors, reflection, doubling, it's a whole thing. Um, and I started reading, I said, this, this way of looking at this object they talking about here. So I said, okay, what is this object? So they had this specific object we had in slavery, right? That if you put it, oh, it's like a mirror or something. If you, if you hold it between uh, a, a door jam, between an inner and exit of a room or a home, if you stared just to the side of the object, you would see the ghost. Mm. And I thought if I could make an object that hung on the threshold at that particular place that they told us, the ancestors told us in their own prescription, if I could do that, I could allude to seeing the ghost. And what you do is when you stare at it, you don't stare by you do pass it. And if you do stare by it, what you see is that that ain't blue. And in a way, it does kind of cue us into the kind of spirits and the ghosts that really exist in that space. Because there was a thing that happened to me when I first, the first couple of times I went to Savannah, that real talk is I, I thought I was haunted. Um, I landed and I was like, what the hell is that smell? Mm. It just smelled like burning. I remember. And nobody around me talked about it. I was like, yo, but don't nobody. Okay. So my partner and I go down. No, I go down and install uh, by myself uh, with the, the hang crew they have. And I remember walking around. I was like, yo, that smell is deeper now. Like it's getting closer. Like this is, there is some, there is some spiritual energy here. Um, and then I remember when I came back, it was gone. Nobody smelled anymore. I was like, yeah, I don't smell anymore either. And then I remember um, a few weeks later, uh, my partner and I are in bed. It's like two, three in the morning. And you know, when you're with your partner, you know, you laying in bed and you know, your partner sometimes talking, they sleep. Um, so you like, the, my partner's like, da, 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 fire. And I was like, mm. I don't pull the sheets up like, yo, am I gonna have to wrestle you out of some sleep? Cause I'm not against shaking you right there. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, if she talk again, then I know she's awake. She's sleeping, man, it's cool. And I roll back over and then I hear, no, 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 seriously, fire, fire. And I was like, what? And she was like, there's a fire. I go out to the balcony. Now I live up here in Harlem on 132nd. There was a, I don't know, whatever, a 10 alarm fire, a 30 alarm fire. It, it, it leveled half a block Ooh. right next to our building, Ooh. right? The smell of cinder was, it, I, it, I'll never forget it. it. It was like an Ellison novel. Mm. It was insane. And then I remember sitting with her and saying, that was the smell of Savannah. Mm. Like there's a kind of spiritual burn in that place that needs to be exercised. And I was like, that's what the show hopefully tries to do. Yeah, cause- You know what I mean? Yes, yeah. You really, when when looking at the pieces uh, in that exhibit, you really have to wrestle with everything that you are like portraying through all of those, those pictures, right? And mm -hmm. especially when you're looking at um, Michael Brown's piece, where you're, you are, you know, uh, oh, the, the photo composites. Yes. And you're just sitting there and you're just looking at all of these different pictures of these faces and how they're coming through. And it brings you straight back to that, that moment when the news hit 
that this mm-hmm. had happened. And all of those pictures do that, be it if they're coming from the past or they've been in the, in the present where we have lived in our current generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what you have done is a tremendous job of invoking that, 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 that feeling so well for us to really have to like reckon with what was there. And we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll dive into that a little bit sure, sure, later. Sure, sure. Um, but you, your pieces, there's some other pieces. Oh, this reminds me of another question I have. But you oh, have pieces, uh, check the skin and, and sly, sly wink. wink. So yeah, like the, the pieces, uh, check the skin and sly wink spoke to me about erasure, erasure of black bodies, black skin and the black experience. It spoke to me about the effects of colonization, such as skin bl- skin bleaching, and the skewed standard of uh, beauty. Because you know, I also grew up in Southeast Asia, where you know, skin bleaching is a thing. When mm-hmm. you're lighter, you're prettier. Like, mm-hmm. You know, effects of colonization. Will you speak more about that, and why was it important to be included in this show in Savannah, Georgia? Yeah. Uh... Uh, one 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 reason it's it's necessary is because those are an archive, uh, and they they function. They're very significant in all of my work because uh, they were the first works that people saw on the East Coast that they were like, "Oh, this dude," and that was like 2010, and nobody knew it. like it was there, and then it was not there anymore because I didn't live in New York, you know. Um, and I remember I bought all those. I bought, I still have a lot of them. I bought, I'm a junkie with it, man. I was like, I'd be up at like two, three in the morning with my bad diet. I'd be like soda and chips trying to keep, trying to keep up with the Yale lifestyle. You know what I mean? Like everybody's trying to hustle. Um, and I would be delirious buying bulks of Ebony magazines off of eBay. And this is before the Astor and everybody was like, oh, these are real, you know? So I was like buying them up because I I was just like, I remember these and I was trying to collect this memory because that memory was associated with my grandmother and my father had died like a year or two before. So I was, I think I was trying to search for this thing. Um, and when I, and once, you know, once you have like 200 Ebony magazines, you like, well, what you going to do? Right. You know, you didn't, you got to justify this purchase because the tax man wants to know. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So then I was like, okay, well, who's my favorite artist? Robert Rauschenberg, my favorite, you know? And I thought, I, w- I, I just was, I was just like looking at these things and erasing them by hand, like with an eraser. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I can, I can, I can move the ink. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, this image isn't even real. This ain't shit but some ink on a sheet of paper. And then I started to able, I was able to understand identity on a whole nother abstract atmosphere on level, right? Um, so once I did erase the first one by hand, uh, which I think uh, a collector AC AC might have that one. I got tired because it was too it was too much work, you know. And it, I'm I'm too physical, and I was tearing pages. So I figured out this chemical that I could mix that immediately strips the ink, mm-hmm. right? And then it, everything got more painterly. I I could do the sly wink where I could erase the eyebrows, and like it was nothing. Right. Um, and then I started to realize, oh, wait a minute, all of the images that I'm really drawn to are all cosmetic advertisements. And it, purely because they all have faces, mm. right? They're all portraits, majority of them. Um, and they have the best colors 
in in uh 1970s ebony magazines they have all the best vibrant colors and and they're the easiest to erase if you have an image i found out that if you have an image that's all black it's fucking damn near impossible to get that son bitch out mm-hmm. you know black black stays forever <laughs> but I, i'm like yes that's a whole nother thing that's a whole nother know. conversation right so i made those works and they all started to make sense because the chemicals i use parody the chemicals that those products you know, uh, utilize as well, right? Bleaching. Mm-hmm. And it is about that kind of erasure, but it it gets complex when we think about ebony magazines as also uh, 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 signifiers of class. Right. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right? when you really open them, I didn't think about this until I got much older. I, you know, when I got, you know, hip to the hip talk, man. Uh, when I got vision. I said, oh, wait a minute. This is like a middle class, upper middle class kind of image that I grew up with. That's interesting. So me attacking that image, attacking that archive only functions in a pejorative for certain people. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. And what I really enjoyed and I'll finish, I guess. I really enjoyed when I was in those works were in the um, Promise Witness Remembrance show, uh, the Breonna Taylor show that was brilliantly curated by Allison Glenn and her, her amazing team. And I remember when Allison called me, I didn't even know Allison. She was just, and she didn't know me. Someone on the team was like, yo, you can't have a show in Louisville without this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, quiet has kept people out to explode, but you can't. So she called me and we had this conversation about the, the work. And I had always been framing the work at that time through abuse. Right. There's a kind of particular kind of violence that goes down when I talk about the work. Um, and when we talked about it, she 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 reframed it for me in an amazing way. That it didn't have to be about abuse, that the erasure could be a promise for something more. Mm. And what she didn't know, and I'm, I'll say this now because n- nobody's really caught on to it yet because I haven't had any uh, big New York shows yet. Um what she didn't know is that that comment then I took to my studio and started bleaching all my tapestries. I got a, I got a fucking a slew of tapestries that are all bleached in the studio. They're fucking beautiful, man. Mm. You know? I'm glad that you brought that up because that goes into my next question about that promise. And uh, you were in an interview on NPR talking about that particular exhibition. And uh, you said that it required the audience to witness the erasure of this black woman or these black women in these images mm-hmm. and that you had taken these from magazines and, and then you, you stated that it required the viewer to project the promise back onto those empty spaces. What is that promise that needs to be projected back into those empty spaces? Is it for the black woman to be seen and to be protected? No, black women don't need protection. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about? But black women don't need protection. I, I'm going to be honest. I, the, since 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 going to going back to therapy, because uh, my therapist before was this older black man. Whew, that was tragic. This man's. I remember when I went to go go to his uh, uh, my first session with him over on East 128th Street. I said, "Oh, he in a church. This going to be fun." <laughs> Didn't know how to get in. I had to ring a doorbell. Uh, there was a long line of people there for, uh, uh, it was a food pantry as well. He came down, shooed everyone away, said, you my, you my two o'clock? And I was like, oh, this is going to be real fun. Go upstairs. This man has an office in the attic of a church. I have a video. It's brilliant. Because I had to send it to my partner to be like, look, if I don't come home, this 
<laughs> this stain, this wax stained carpet room. You know where to find me. Listen, right? So I, I black women don't need that because black women are ones are the, are the beings who, who have helped me out of the rut that I was in. Hmm. There's my partner, my mother, my two therapists, you know, my other colleagues. Y'all don't need no help. I don't need no protection. Y'all need y'all need if, if you if you would like assistance, that's great. But I think I think what what I what I try what I'm trying to do in the work in reference to black women, um, one is to say, yeah, I see it. Y'all not y'all not y'all not y'all not wrong. We see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to try to develop a kind of allegiance, you know. I mean, the one thing I've noticed about black women in the art world from my experience, and I'm sure it's not this way across the board, but from my experience, there seems to be a little bit more unity. Mm. There's a kind of collective spirit that I'm not, I'm, and I'm, I might be totally wrong because I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm on the, I'm on the, I'm out, I'm on the outskirts because I choose to be, because I like to be out here alone making work. Um, but it seems to me, I, I praise black women in the art world because it's just like, man, they doing it. They just doing it, man. Like the, the some of the, the, most of the top curators, black women. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's a particular kind of black and brown women, right? There, I've noticed I'm, my sense is that there's a particular kind of sensitivity that I'm now recognizing. I guess Audrey Lord would call it the erotics, mm-hmm. or I would also call it black and brown erotics because I I have yet to I've I've yet to met a Karen who had it. Just being honest, <laughs> just say um, what what's the truth, you know. But I'm just being honest, you know, because there's a certain kind of sensitivity to material in life that black and brown women have that, um, yeah, we wouldn't be here without it. Mm. That's just the truth. That's just the damn truth. Like, even even with uh, my partner, we were talking about it, and she was like, yeah, I just don't know if, you know, I'll be a good mother. I said, you will. Mm. And she said, how you know? I said, because I can just see it. We got this dog here? Man, shoot. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I mean, you, 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 we, I love you too, but man, can I get my belly rub? <laughs> but yeah, I, I just don't think, I just think y'all do it. I'm just, I'm just blessed to be a part of some of it while I'm here. So you know. in 2022, this year, um, I have a desire to focus solely on Black writers, artists, and other creators who are from the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the South comes to mind, especially in the time that we're finding ourselves living in currently, it is never paired with anything beautiful. And I want to show the world that the South is so much a major part of this country. And you being from Louisville, Kentucky, now based Mm -hmm. in New York, what do you feel that you bring into these art spaces that highlight those Southern Kentucky roots? Oh, oh shucks. <laughs> oh shucks. That's the first thing I bring. I bring disarmament. I bring I bring an all shucks uh uh you know uh yeah, I bring an all shucks slower southern perspective that doesn't move too fast if it doesn't have to, because it knows sooner or later I'm gonna get to the end of this thing and you know, why rush? Mm-hmm. Um uh which is reflected in the, the the pace of my career, which I definitely appreciate. Um I bring that kind of humility to the to the career um, and, re- and respect for what I'm trying to do that I think is 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 slow cooked like a good gumbo, like a good pot of greens. What are we talking about, man? Mm-hmm. You know, like a good plate of ribs, slow cooked. Uh, I tell you, I, I bring that 
to the table. But then I also bring a perspective that's that's earth that 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 comes from an earth that can see objects differently than other people can see objects and can trans, you know, because I once wrote this essay um, for this publication, this publication, and it was 2018 called Eflux. And I wrote about this artist named David Hammonds and his relation to the to to this uh, what do you call it? This writer named E. Franklin Fraser, who wrote this book back in like the 40s, uh, the black bourgeoisie. And he puts you on to how, you know, we have class in within race, you know, there is racial, racial classes, right? Or there's class within our race, right? Um, but he's looking at the black masses by which he, he's really meaning lower, lower income black folks, mm-hmm. specifically those who are still kind of tethered to the, the fields, right? And he's like, there's something more, there's something special about those folks that you're not seeing. There's a, there is a creativity and ingenuity that occurs in in bondage and oppression that they still have a kind of connection to, mm-hmm. right? They they still have a connection to a kind of West Western African African way of being, but they may not understand that, but they still glorify it in everything they do. You feel what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of shit I'm after, right? I'm trying to bring that to the territory. And I think I'm, I, I, I do it in the way I speak. You know, I can go from academic speak, you know, to, 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 oh, shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, I can break code. My father taught me well. He taught me, you know, he could, he could, he spoke the, the, he spoke, he spoke the best English. That doesn't make, that's not correct, but he spoke the best English. He was an English teacher. He could, he would tell you at the dinner table, Oh, 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 you're getting a little bit too smart for your bridges. I need you to conjugate this verb right now. Mm. And you would be like, what? And it was a verb. You never heard the word. He'd be like, but conjugate the verb. He's like, come back at me when you can or talk at the table when you can, you know. And he would he would do that because he was a genius. Um, he wasn't. Yeah, he was a genius. He was tough. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just going somewhere. But I, I'm going I'm to come back. I'm going to come back. Next, next question. I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> Are you okay? I got to come back. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was at the dinner table with you when you were when you were doing it so man, I'm sorry man. I, he, I, but he would go yeah man he would code switch because because we you we man he would code man why you do that old man you code switch. It was <laughs> today your birthday old man because he would he would sit at the head of the table and you would go through the day and he would talk about the day and he, my mother and he he and mother would do six four kids at the table but when that tv in that corner wasn't working Oh. man and it, and it started to vertical roll and loop on you he would say boy go fix that <laughs> you knew he wasn't fucking playing because mit was done then <laughs> was done then boy go fix that I mean he didn't want to explain it to you he didn't have the bandwidth you better not you better not say a damn thing and you better not put the fork down with a problem you know you better just go over there and fix it because you knew what to fix you know so yeah, code switching. I bring that a certain kind of code switch that I think that I think is warm. Mm. I really do. I really do. So you have we've talked about your work and and tapestry. Um, and mm-hmm. when you mentioned one of your your talks or or a lecture, you said, "What is it for a black man to use the medium that is stereotypically seen as women's work, and use it yeah. to express the oppression?" of the people. 
what what type what it what is in this tapestry that you found that was that was so special that you chose it as your medium oh oh well i mean i i, I love telling the story but i'll keep it brief you know when i used to go to the metropolitan museum of art it was the only room that nobody was in mm. every other room was was touched except for maybe uh, eastern art but yeah i guess uh and um, I was just looking for something that nobody nobody wanted, mm. because I'm I am from the margins too, and not everybody wants me. As one of my colleagues said the other day, he was like, "They don't even want you here, man." And I was like, "What?" He was like, "They don't want none of us." And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> "Nothing was hurt, man," because I believed it. I, I believed the hype. I was like, "They want me here," and then he was like, "Nah, bruh, get a clue." And this is a this is a baller scholar. He told me this shit. And he was like, "I love you, man," but yo. They don't want none of us here. And that's why we got to be here. And I was like, oh, shit. Mm. I was like, all right, I'm good. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, that was that was brilliant when he told That fucked me up. That really. And he was like, this is a job. And I was like, no, this is a career. He was like, fuck that. This is a job. <laughs> Teaching is a job, dude. And I was like, he's right. This is a job. Oh. Okay, I have perspective. <laughs> you know? He just, he was, he's an older cat, man. And I. I'm, I'm having a problem at the university I teach at right now. Um, and I'm okay saying that. And he was talking to me off the ledge and he was like, he was like, look, I've had family members who, you know, didn't, didn't get out of this grade at high school, you know, and they, they had, they worked here, they worked there. Boom, 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 boom. He said, I grew up in a world where everybody just had a job. Right. He was like, and then none of, he was, I was like, but it's a great, he was like, nah, bro, it's a job. He was like, I done had about six of them. So he was like, once you realize that, you're gonna be good. And it hurt when he first told me that, but then I was like, okay, I'm, I'm. He's right. I gotta get a grip. <laughs> let's you let's know, dive so. into that a little bit um, because when we normally have writers on, sometimes we ask them about what it is to publish their works in a very white-dominated space in publishing. Your hand, mm -hmm. the, the hands that take in all of this literature that we read, most of it is a white person that's touching it. And you working at a, a, a predominantly white uh, institute, what is that like for you? You know, when, it, be if you're teaching or just you as an artist, what is that like for you to have to go through and navigate? And what was it like for you as a student you know, oh, yeah. to go through, Indiana University and, and wow. Yale to, to go through that as, as a black man. And in this mm -hmm. arts world where some people think that that is not where we belong. Right, it was, well, as a student, it's tough because I think a lot, from my experience, uh, I've found a number of students of color, uh, black and brown students have, usually have the same complaint. Uh, we're tired of having to explain the work to you. Um, not everything I make is about identity uh you know because usually you can you can see it in the in the pensive face of the white critic uh at, at grad school or an undergrad who's your professor you can see this look of how is this about being black um or what can i say um that will make this make sense to them and then they'll they'll reference some artists you're like yeah i i, I know that person but i'm not i don't even they'll they'll reference someone like i don't know um 
You know, I love Kahinde. The dude's a beast. Kahinde Wild. They'd be like, Kahinde, you be like, you know Kahinde Wild. And I'm just turning this motherfucker and be like, dude, I just made a painting that's just a red square. Like, how is how are these how do these two worlds intersect other than that we black? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if you're looking for them answers in this work, you searching the wrong fucking place. I'm I want to be half the time when we when we were students, I think we were just looking under tables and shit. So somebody get one of the white professors like or one of our colleagues or peers could turn and say, what you looking for? And me turn around and be like, your motherfucking mind. You must have lost it up here. <laughs> talking about these things, man. Like, what, what? So there's that kind of thing you get through. And what happened at Yale, which I thought was great, um, the students of color had our own crits. Mm. We would do the crits with everyone else. And then when it was like, you really, you really needed, you wanted somebody to be honest with you and really get to some shit, you just call in the reinforcements. Be like, "Yo, can you come over here and, and talk to me about my work?" Mm. You know, bet I'll be over in a heartbeat. And they were, and my, and they, that's why I love them today. My man did Didier and uh, and, and Les, Leslie and, and David and Philanders, they would come over and they would they would scholastically cut me up. Mm. You know, and then afterwards be like, "All right, let's go get some beers." <laughs> you know what I mean? It was it was camaraderie and love. Um, so that that those were the, that was one of the saving graces I had uh, in grad school. Plus, I started therapy then, so that really helped. Um, but then once you get to you get to that that level where you're teaching, it's a different animal because you see how the sausage is made and the shit ain't cute. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You like you like oh, well we're clearly gonna hire this other person because they are, quite frankly, they are the token, but they're also more qualified than everybody else. And then you turn around, come back next fall, talking about, all right, where's the person we are? And you look and you're like, this this other person who fits the shade of everyone else in this room? Oh, this is interesting. Mm, mm. You know, you see, you see that kind of stuff and and you don't you don't want to feel jaded, I guess, but you also don't want to take it to the students. Because mm. it's not on them. You're, you know. So you find you find other ways to develop a uh, uh, collaborative um therapy really and it gets coded as um uh groups you know uh black administrators these kinds of groups are really just code for therapy like if we could like that let's just call it what it is this shit is just therapy because all we do is we go in there and we grow we complain about things to each other like oh you think oh well so-and-so yeah bam you know like that's the honor that's the honest truth but but what's great is once you find the, the the group, you know, your your peers and your colleagues at the space, whether you're a student or your your faculty or your administration or anything like that, then when you, then you ride with them if they're good people. And I found some really good people at the university who keep me whole, you know. You know, they keep me moving. And real talkers, they're women of color. Mm. And that right there is really important when you find your group. Because mm-hmm. even even if you find people, you know, like that old adage, uh, mm-hmm. all, all skin folk ain't kin folk. When you find yes. your kin folk, that mm-hmm. really means a lot of like someone that you can talk to who can, as uh, KSA Layman so eloquently said, knock your hustle. Mm-hmm. Who can call you out when you need to be called out. Like you right. said, who can help critique you, who can help guide you to be a better version of your of yourself. Yes, I love that. Cause game peeps game. Yes. Yep. 
They be like, look, 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 little man. I don't, I played this before, and you first of all, you playing it obvious and wrong. Second of all, you don't gotta work this hard. That's what I wish someone would have told me earlier. You really don't gotta work this hard. Cause because once I was I started looking around, I was like, oh, all the other colleagues aren't working that hard either. Okay. Okay. I'm flexing too much over here. I'm, my back hurts, you know, like my back hurts. Ooh, man. My back. I like that. Do the I like the hustle. That's interesting. I, I was just in uh, Miami for the art the art fairs. Uh, oh, for Art Basel. Yeah, yeah, I was there, and um, and one of my dear friends who I went to school with, we were having breakfast one morning, um, and man, it's like Miami's like New York. Everybody just goes there, and he's like, oh, so and so and so. He's like, shit, I can't escape none of these people. <laughs> but he was introduced. He was like, he was like, I want to introduce you to so and so because she's the professor at NYU I was telling you about. I was like, oh, and we met and I was telling her, it was like nine in the morning on Thursday. I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm gonna be honest. I might, I might, I'm not feeling this place right now uh, in terms of the university because we're, I'm on, they on some racist stuff. And, and she said, I said, I'm feel alone. That's what I said. I said, I'm on leave right now because I feel alone because they, they did some things and I had to get away. And she was like, in her, uh, in her amazing, uh, I, I, I want to say she's Venezuelan, but I'm probably totally wrong. She could be Puerto Rican. I'm uh, the two different, two totally different spectrums. Don't mean to disrespect, but I'm just lost right now. And I'm, now I'm going to find myself good. But she looked at me and she was like, yo, you're not alone. Mm. She was like, here's my number. When we get back, let's have some drinks. You, you good. Cause they, they trying you right now, but we're going to figure it out. Mm. You know? And for someone to do that for an older faculty, just say that we in Miami, right? Mm. I'm like this, this is kinfolk. That is you know, kinfolk. that is kinfolk. So when we saw your piece, grammatological one, if I'm saying mm-hmm. it correctly, yeah. It, yeah. it it actually portrayed the disembodiment of Black people. How you said words and names and phrases were were mm-hmm. floating in that haint blue background. Um, it was the first piece that I saw, and actually, honestly pulled me in because that haint blue color was like when we when me and my husband went to savannah he was drawn to it so when i saw your mm-hmm. when i saw the walls i'm like oh what is in here and mm-hmm. i saw that picture and just the words and it made me reflect on how words when misused repeatedly also had the power of imprinting trauma mm-hmm. so can, yeah, with an inscription. Yep. Mm. Can you take us back to that journey of making making that piece? Sure. So that that work, uh, yeah, words are an inscription. That's 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 Derrida. Uh, Nine eighteen. That's good. Yeah. So that work started with my 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 need to understand uh, or to open up to open up my work. Actually, it was it was used to open up the work. So what I would do back in like twenty. 11 I think I would in a little notebook I would make these little these word diagrams or sociograms and they would start very simply because it was just all wordplay because I was trying to figure out how to take the limits of language beyond itself while also having to stay within it in a paradoxical way so I would I would on a sheet of paper in my notebook I would write a uh, do a little oval and I would write a word in it and that word might be something like uh, OJ Simpson and then I would draw a line from that in another word of another bubble. And then I might do like 
Simpson. And then I would draw a line from OJ and not Simpson itself, but just OJ, what might be like Nicole Brown. And then from Simpson, I would write Homer. Hmm. You see? And then from Homer, I might write two separate lines. One would be uh, Yellowhead. The other would be the Iliad. And I was just making these concept maps to try to expand how the language was working because I understood that the words were, were uh, the, the, the limit of the word was an illusion. I could just find connections, right? And that was that was quite that was before I found uh, post-structuralist theory, and I was like, oh, they just they did it before. I just did it. I just did it in a way that was more visual and a little bit simpler. Mm-hmm. I would use those as maps to my shows, so I would try to make objects by way of that map. And you would come into a show and be like, wait a minute, how does this relate to that? And if you understood the schematics of how language works, you would say, oh, the world in which I exist is this. You see. Right. Um, but once I did that, I started to realize that it also breaks out, it, it extends the, uh, the confines of Black identity, mm. right? In a surrealist way, it can, I can take that map and relate O.J. Simpson to, uh, who would it be, Nicole Brown? I can make, I can relate O.J. Simpson to Charlie Brown if I want, you see? And it doesn't require me to limit myself to what the stereotype of Black people's, black people's are. Right. It's just a very, for me, it was just a very simple kind of childish way, a playful way of getting beyond this is what they tell us we have to be. Mm. But it was very effective because I was like, you know, I think I I started there in that picture. Mm-hmm. I did the whole thing, like the tapestry on on the right side where uh-huh. and then the big one with Fred Hampton and the pictures. Mm-hmm. With Michael Brown, and I came back to that picture next to Martin Luther King and Rodney King's. Um, oh, the face, yeah, yeah. And and I was like, and then I understood. I'm like, oh, this was my guide. This is like my guidebook <laughs> of it. like you know where where I need to go, it. what I need to look for. That's the map, and you see when that you're, you're. I think you're like one of the first person to be like, "Oh, that's the." Because I've been trying to do that. I've been trying to get people linked onto that kind of logic for a long time. Like the, 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 the answer is in the space. You just have to find it. Right. That's when I was like, and that's when I was like, we have to talk to this person. He's a genius. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna, oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, the answer is in this. No one's really cracked that code. Yeah, that's cool, man. It's funny someone finally figured that out. The answer's in the space. You just have to find it. Yep. And everybody's like, what is, how does this, how does this work? And I'm like, oh, let's just, just read the fucking map. <laughs> it was that. The map is right here, but people just get caught up in the, I think people get caught up in, I, I, I do think people get caught up in the beauty of that object. It is very beautiful. Right. And I, yeah, thank you. And I also think people look at it like, well, these are just a bunch of words and not everybody wants to read when you come look at art which is fine i try to make them as uh engaging as possible that's why i use the uh, the ransom note method mm. right so there's no one voice it's just a kind of disembodied voice telling you what to do mm-hmm. or it's suggesting which how to navigate space because that's isn't that what life is it's just there's like a disembodied spirit trying to get us to do things yes yes Oh, you know, sometimes that spirit's not okay, but sometimes that spirit's pretty nice. <laughs> so um, your exhibit recently came to a close in Milan, Italy. Congratulations on Thank you. being international. Uh, with your work in an Italian museum, what, what kind of conversations were had in regards to your work and were they different than what you had here in, in America? 
Yes. So um, I'm really conscious that the method of weaving that I use is French. So I already, they already get it. Mm. Like I, 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 I don't have to always sit there and say, and this is not a bad thing, but it's their history. So I guess they should know it. But sometimes I do. I, I, I make the connection because I'm like, well, you know, the, the painter Seurat uh, had a, had a relationship with design schools, the Beaux Arts. And they're like, yeah, yeah we know. And I'm like, they're like, oh, he got that. And that's the relationship to the tapestry. I'm like, oh, y'all know that? Yeah, that's why we like this work. Because you're like, you're mining our history. I'm like, that's the fucking point. Because you all are the colonizers. You're right. You're no colonizers. Nobody's talking. Like, let's be real. I love the French. I love France. I'm ready to, I'm wanting to move there in a heartbeat. I love that place. But let's not forget the fact that y'all got your asses kicked by the Haitians and y'all been making them pay ever since. Because mm-hmm. you, your hustle was your hustle was caught. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. so all I'm doing is I going to that medieval section and figuring out the tapestry thing was just like, oh, this is the this is the original colonialist citation to me. Mm. Because this was the object that displayed the most colonial power in a two-dimensional framework painting was not it in my opinion i just don't think it was because painting painting i think was more affordable not like someone in the middle class could use it but you had to have a certain kind of capital to have a tapestry right Mm -hmm. Right. because the tapestry only can be made if there was a painting that was made first right so i had to have enough money to make the fucking have the painting sketched out right that cartoon so i can have you make this that's like a little throwaway that's like okay well i'm just going to take this little yacht to get to my bigger yacht oh (laughs) okay (laughs) you know what i'm saying that's like it's like oh Oh, you, you, where's your yacht? I have a hoopty. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got a beat up. Uh, that That's funny. I think, of, do you mind if I tell you a story? Okay. I'm sorry. I'm just going, but I think it's a good story. It happened in Miami because this is when you're not, when I'm, when, when reality hits, right? So I'm in Miami hanging out uh, with some folks. Um, and they're like, we're going to this party. Um, I'm like, all right, we went to dinner. Let's go to, and you know, in Miami, it's like a party started like one in the morning. So I'm old, but I, uh, I'm trying to hang. Let's go. So we go to this party and I'm like, whose party is it? And they named this famous person. I'm like, oh, bad. That dude's there? Bad, bad, bad. They're like, no, it's his party. I'm like, oh, oh, he's fucking, he, he's famous. That dude, okay. But I'm trying to keep it cool. I'm like, oh, he there? Cool, cool, cool. But inside I'm like, yo. <laughs> right? So I'm like, so where is this party? And they're like, it's on an island. I'm like, excuse me? Am I, what? I thought we just driving. I'm like, yeah, it's on this island. They're like, it's got this private bridge and shit. And I'm like, on Star Island. Yeah, man, right? <laughs> man, I get on this fucking island, right? And we get up to the door, and the people I'm with who have, I love these people. They're like, we'll see if we can get in. I was like, we'll see. <laughs> nah, baby, we can't get, get. Gilligan never said we'll see. Gilligan was like, we on the island, we getting off this fucking <laughs> So we finally get into the party, no real hassle. And the famous dude's there and I bum a cigarette off of him, fucked his ass all up. He was like, oh, he, he was over talking to this girl. And I was like, watch me mess his game. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> I all tapped him. He was like, what? And I was like, you mind if I bum a cigarette? I don't even smoke cigarettes. You know what I mean? He gave me a cigarette. I was like, good looking out. So then I turned back to my party and I was like, yeah. So I told this other dude to shut up. And he was like, oh, and I was like, yes. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Y'all didn't know this was going to happen tonight, but we having fun. Um, 
the point is this. The point is this. <laughs> so it's like two. It's like two in the morning. I'm being generous with myself. I don't drink, so I had one too many. I was like, okay, I remember this feeling. This is the feeling you feel right before the wall hits. You need to leave. And I was like, okay, I'm good. Bet. But I'm on this island and I'm like, oh shit, how do I get off this island? <laughs> Listen, I straight Gilligan, man. I, 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 I'm standing at this party and I get the Uber and I'm like, bet a Prius. Then I looked up and I was like, this party is filled with a bunch of billionaires. I'm not about to have this Prius pull up front gate <laughs> while everybody else is in a fucking Escalade with tinted windows. So you no know, front. I've I booked it. I was like, all right, if I can get to the edge of the bridge before this car get here, I'm gonna say I'm not gonna look back. So I'm booking it. I'm like, dude, I'm rocking this white shirt. It's pitting up bad. I'm like sweating. I'm like Cinderella at the ball, baby. Like, boom. Booked it. I got to the edge of the bridge. I saw the Prius. I was like, stop, stop. He pulled up. I was like, he was like, I got you. And I was like, thanks, bro. I got you. He was like, he pearled out. I was like, he was like, I got you, dude. I, I feel you. You didn't want to be caught in the Prius up at the, up at the front gate. I was like, see, this is why I like black people. Thank you. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? So I don't remember the point, but I think that's just a great Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That was right there. That moments, right, they had me in tears. That's a story right there. That's that's a story. That's how you do it. <laughs> um, yeah. so we got we got two questions left. So my, my question. Oh, we're actually gonna talk about the Star Island. <laughs> oh man, that Star Island was like what? Like I was like, first of all, when when I was in the car, when I was in the whip, and I was like, where are we going on this party? Let's ride. We were in this Escalade, right? Uh with these rich people, I love it. I, I I love being poor, but you know it's nice to hang out with rich people. Sometimes. I heard that. <laughs> but anyway, um, we in the whip, and they're like, "Yeah, we're going to." They're like, "Well, guess what the name of this island is?" And I was like, "What?" And they were like, "Guess," and I was like, "Star Island," and they were like, "Yeah," and I was like, <laughs> "That's about as stupid as having your your bike combination one two three four. White people ma- named it that way man what are we gonna name this hmm. why you gotta even ask that question the name is famous island nope nope famous amos has that name. <laughs> yeah. let's call it star island there's no more star search let's call it star island <laughs> you're insane man. i'm sorry what's another question i'm sorry I'm over um well i guess the three questions i will i want to go Shoot. back to when you were talking about how you were at the met and you were going through the sections that people rarely hit up. Mm-hmm. And for me, oh, going yeah. into an art museum, those are the areas that I'm like, I have no interest in them. I don't want to see these old pictures of these old white people hanging on the wall. Let me go somewhere else. But what mm-hmm. you have done within that conversation of talking about how those influences help influence the work that you are, are doing now makes me want to say, okay, let me stop in and look at those places, look there. at those statues, look at whatever is in there, because maybe there is something in there that we can use, that we can pull from and use to create just on our podcast show. You never know. And I guess yeah, don't throw the baby out of the bathwater. Hey, and I guess in a sense that's how we got to you, right? Because you did the work, 
you went out there and did the work and now we're here talking to you about these amazing pieces thank you so much my mother uh is a retired school teacher and one rule that she always abided by because she taught second grade but that uh that you never tell the student what you assume you think the picture that they have drawn is you let them tell it yeah so what is the one takeaway that you want viewers of your work to know sure uh that's interesting my mother was a teacher too mm. that was beautiful my, my, my mother my father supported her going back to school after she she was a social worker he supported he supported her and man they made it work i don't know i never asked but oh, i know how they made it work she won that she won a a, 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 a raffle once now he was born in 26 and I'll answer your question in a second. I promise I will. So he was born in the depression. Um, so she won this raffle once and th there were two options. You can have a three day, four night trip to Hawaii or you could get four, count on four brand new tires. <laughs> she still holds a grudge and the old man done gone home. She like, look, he, I'm still mad at him. He made me get them damn tires. I said, oh, I said, my God, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, she was a teacher. So when, um, what, what I'd like for people to walk, there's a few things. I'd like for people to walk away with the recognition that, you know, uh, the stereotype of black men is only limited as, as, as much as you make it. And if you really stare at, at the material evidence, which in this sense are the tapestries and the way, I'm, the way I work with material, even that object that's just that ball of dirt with the police lamp that's hanging on the threshold over the door, that took some, that was some effort. Um, if you could just see that kind of care in the work, even though it, for some people it looks uh, chaotic, that would be nice. You know, care doesn't have to be polished, you know. Care can be a hole in a pair of shoes with some newspaper filling the hole. Don't got to be polished. Just got to just got to work. Mm -hmm. I don't want people to walk away with that. I'd also like people to walk away with uh, a healthy, <clears throat> a healthy respect for what mining the colonizer can do. Mm, right. right. You can you can take things that 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 they that they take for granted and make them make them beautiful. You know, you can you can transcend the subjugation of peoples of color into a a fluffy mound of cotton because that's what those tapestries are they ain't nothing but cotton and every time we every time we're in the studio because they're all woven of cotton all we're doing is taking some nails and pulling the pulling the threads we're just picking cotton man we're just trying to find the ancestors any way we can if i have to replicate the process in a kind of metaphorical way why the hell not mm, right you feel me mm -hmm. um but i also want people to walk away with an understanding that um while the image they sell us is, is violent, what we choose to do with that image uh, doesn't have to be. You know, I think one of the critiques of my work for the years has always been the images are so charged and violent. Well, they are because my personal reality as a male of color in, in the United States requires me to grapple with that. Right. You know, um, yeah, I, I'm, I tell people all the time when, when I, I like to jog a uh, long distance and I jog, I live in Harlem, but I can go to the Bronx and be over there in like five minutes um, over the 135th bridge. And I'm not going to lie. When I jog through Harlem and the Bronx, the police watch me. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I am conscious that I am a target. I'm afraid some days, but they're not going to take me. Don't believe so. Um, so I want people to, to, to recognize that, yeah, the work is violent, but the, the violence that I'm trying to work against is an everyday occurrence in my psyche, you know, and I'm trying to deal with it. Now, not all, all artists choose to do that. I just choose to deal with it uh, through images. It's just the, the best way I know how. Mm. Yeah, it is the best way I know how. And, you know, the final thing I would want people to walk away with is that, man, black people are smart as shit. Yeah, you know, we black and brown people are just so brilliant. We connect things that I, I and that's not a, that's not a humble brag. I, I do think that I'm a, I'm kind of smart, but I'm just riff, riff, riffing off other people who did it before me, who I think are much more smart, smarter than I. Um, and I would love people to come to the shows and just be like, yeah, we do more than just make paintings. We do a whole slew of you know. That's what I love. One thing that <laughs> um, I I will hold dear is hearing you say that we are the avant-garde oh yeah i've said that before and I'm, we were the avant-garde before the avant-garde yeah. what are we talking about and i'm like that that might end up being a tattoo somewhere i might get that but it, it Listen. sat with me i was like it's, it's the truth it is the truth and uh what you have done has definitely been a definition and a testament to that statement and uh so, let's try something real quick because i because i feel like you're on to something let me open this damn etymology.com <laughs> oh, the, the origin yes i'm sure now this is not accurate fully accurate avant-garde french literally advanced guard now black folks do guard everything we are usually the ones uh, since borrowed again, 1910, artistic term, nah, also used around the same time, political sense. Nah. But what is the avant? Ah, it is the before. Ah, we are the avant. We are the before. We are. We are guarding the before. That, that is. We are. We, we were the avant-garde before the avant-garde was the avant-garde. Shit. You can't you can't look at a Picasso and be like, oh, he he invented it on his on his own. Nah, he found it somewhere else. Who was before him? Mm-hmm. You know, and quite frankly, those objects that he stole, you know, in terms of their ideas, formally, have a lot more power. Mm-hmm. I really believe in those objects. I have them all over the apartment. Um, but yeah, that's true. We are the avant garde. Before the avant-garde. We are just the before. How about that? What is blackness? Blackness is the before. Oh, that's some Michael Burnham discovery type shit. Y'all don't even know what just happened. That's some Star Trek. What are black people? We are the before. <laughs> oh, that's oh, 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 fierce. What are black what are black and brown people? We are the before. <laughs> you better write that's that down. Write Listen, down. I'm about to- Nah, this is the recording. What do you want me to do? Oh, it will there. It will be forever, ever, ever out there. Yes. Ooh. More questions? I'm sorry. One last question. Well, I guess two in in between is one thing that we always ask people when they come on the show is we want to know your top five favorite books of all time. But you also, as a as an artist, we would also like to know the the five five top artists that contemporary your peers that you want people to know about that you want to hype up oh bad uh yeah it's um i'll hype up people who who aren't who aren't recognized yet 
I don't think, um, or as much as they should be. I think my dude Philandis Timms is a, is a beast. T H A M E S. That's the homie. Um, Didier Williams, that dude. That's that's my homie. Um, Leslie Smith the third. He's doing some weird abstract abstract paintings in Wisconsin. If he would just move back to the East Coast, he'd be fired. Um, I'm trying to think. Ooh, do they have to be visual artists? No, that's, a no. that's a great question. I'm gonna talk about someone who gets who has not gotten the shine she deserves. Ari Lennox. Yes, that sister that's is sister right there. No reason. I, I think it's a colorism thing, but that's just me. I'm, I might be totally off. That sister's music. Oh, what? I just got a new apartment. That's him. That is my jam. Listen, my girl put me on. She was like, I used to play this in my apartment when I got my first apartment. I lost my mind. I was like, I could, I see why. It's just the, her voice. And the way and the way it's coupled with the horns that she plays. It's like a jazzy yeah. jazz. People not making music like that. You know what I'm saying? So she's just... She's everything. And the final one would be this group out of New Orleans called Tank and the Bangers. Yes. Dead man. Listen. All of it. She does everything. She, they're amazing. Right? She's amazing. The song, the song they did about Andre 3000, I was like, this is too cute. This is too good. This is too good. Have you ever seen they, them live? No, my partner, she was like, I was in New Orleans years ago and I saw them. She's like, they're, they're even better live. Because they play those instruments, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so those are my top five artists. Top five books, in, in no particular order. Clearly, Ebony and Jet Magazine, that's a one. That's, you know. Um, I would have It really would have to be Fred Moten's In the Break. Because that, that thing really revolutionized my mind. Um, Audrey Lord's, uh, what is the collection? Um, oh, man. Um, there's a, there's a collection of her essays that I'm I've I've been reading a lot, but also the one that's uh you you this your si you think your silence will protect you. Yes. Yeah, Audrey Lorde has really been messing me up, and the two and the and the therapy book at least the book uh this is two more so the therapy book uh, uh the body keeps the score. Mm. I think all people of color should read that book. That that's just like hello. Um, it's like oh I am I, I learned how I. Really, I, that that book taught me to that that book taught me embodiment. Mm. That was like, oh, this shaking I'm feeling, okay. And I'll I'll one more would be I'm sorry, Michelle Obama's becoming, becoming. Mm. because what that book did. There was a moment I read it and she talked about uh, when she and Barack early on were having an argument or a disagreement and her body was shaking. I was like, oh, I'm not the only one. Mm. And then I remember talking to my partner. She was like, no, a lot of us feel that. And then our therapist was like, you should read this book. And I started reading it. And I was like, oh, so that's what I'm feeling. Because I didn't know. That, and then I could, that, right? Right, don't you? You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that book popped up earlier for me a couple of days ago, watching a conversation of a podcast that was recorded. I had never heard mm -hmm. of it. And then mm. going back when we were looking at the picture I took of all the books that you had on the shelf, I'm like, there's that book. I said, mm. now I'm seeing it twice. I think I need to go ahead and read that bad boy if it's popping up like that. Yeah, that book is special. Yeah. That book, like, I was like, oh, okay. 
So I, I, so cause, cause now it's kind of like, uh, whenever I'm triggered, I can immediately be like, okay, I'm feeling it this way mm-hmm. and I can locate it in the body. I'm like, okay, I know that feeling. I need to, I need, I need a break. Cause uh, this ain't going, this ain't working, mm-hmm. you know, but prior to, prior to that book and really prior to my, this, this new, like two, two, two years of therapy, I'd have been like, either I'd have shut down. Right. And just like closed off and withdrew. Or I would have withdrew to a point that someone would have kept poking. You're like, hey, can we talk? And I was just, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, lashed out. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I've noticed a lot of men of color seem to do when we when we lose words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's something when you are given the tools, you find the language that you need to really ex- yep. and express. This is what I've been feeling. And I didn't know right? that this is what you call it. I was Man. on the phone this morning and my friend told me, he was like, have you ever heard of the term imposter syndrome? And I was like, yes. yes. And he was like, I never heard of it until I was sitting in therapy a few weeks yep. ago. And, and I realized not that it just, not only is it equated to, you know, you maybe career wise, but just like in your life where you feel like you aren't allowed to have the things that you have and but that you're paying you? for it to, to fall for the bottom to fall out girls can i tell y'all so we like so my 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 dealer from luxembourg who i love uh my art gallery in luxembourg helped me set up this exhibition at the institute in italy and um they go they fly us over we're gonna they're gonna put us up we're gonna have a whole blast and the dealer's gonna show up we're gonna have a blast in italy which we ended up doing it was amazing um but in my mind, all the signs are telling me you're not going to you're not going to Milan, right? Mm. So the first sign is I need to renew my passport. Oh well, there's clearly enough time. Then they gonna come back talking about yeah, it's gonna take a lot longer than you expected. I was anxious and I, I had to adjust my expectations. I said we're not going to Milan. Mm. All of a sudden, I'd say about a few weeks before we go to Milan, it, it pops up because I was gonna have to go down to the passport office two days before you fly and try to try to hustle. That's how they do you. It shows up. My partner, like, I think it's your passport. Boom. Open. I'm like, Oh, but we're not going. Mm -hmm. She like, why? I was like, because we're just not going. Okay. Some other shit's happening uh, at the studio. Okay. We're not going. I got to stay here and deal with this. Nah, nah, nah. We get the car. We're going to the Newark airport from Harlem. Um, in the entire car ride, she hyped. I'm sitting there. I told her, I said, we're not going, Milan. I kept saying it. We're not going. we on the way to the fucking airport. We're not going, Milan. Because I'm waiting for the other shoe. I'm like, this car going to catch a flat. You know, something about to happen, right? We on the airplane in business class, right? I'm playing with the seat like, ooh, this shit becomes a bed. <laughs> People are getting on. I don't want to look like I don't belong here. Right? But I'm like, oh yes, yes, yes. This, this, this. These buttons seem to work very well. So you know, me and my part, my partner and I are sitting to get side by side, and there's a little partition that you can push a button. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up. It goes down. And the point is, I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden, the the plane starts backing up, and I was like, we're not going to Milan, though. Something about to happen. Do 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 do. The fucking planes in the air. I push the button. The fucking thing. I'm like this. The thing goes down. I was like, "We going to Milan?" <laughs> yes, man. That I was like, "Boop." That thing was like, "We going to Milan?" I was, I was hyped the whole for 
that was like four months of waiting for the shoe to drop mm. because I didn't think it was available for me. Right. I just didn't think so. So then fast forward. Um, it's the Friday before we're about to fly back to the States. And I'm, I'm talking to my talking to my dealer. I'm like, yo, I want to just go. I want to go. I want to go hang out at Lake Como from Milan. But the train said like two hours. And she says, oh, don't worry. I'll get you a car. And I'm like, oh, it's like that. You got to get me a car. Okay. You get me up there. I'll figure out a way back. Right. And we had breakfast, just the two of us. And I'm watching her order this car. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm ordering you a car. And I was like, is that an Uber? And she's like, yeah, I grabbed a fucking phone. And I turned it off. I was like, I could do that. Mm-hmm. And she was like, what I was like, you just made it accessible for me. Now I know what to do. You know what I mean? I just needed act. I just needed to know that I had access mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Uber is something I do every day, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So that, that's how, that's how sinister the imposter syndrome is. Access. That shit is sinister, man. It's insidious. You can't even enjoy the moment nope. you can in not only just the moment but just the life like you're just like you know there's a part of you that says i want to be able to dream and do all the impossible things yep right yeah it feels like there's like this rope that's tied to your ankle that's just like i'm gonna hold you and yank you down yep. and remind yep. you you know what it really is when what it really is isn't what it really is it's not right. So I was, you know what? I was telling my therapist all of that. And she was like, but look at what you did. And I was like, what? Well, she was like, you went into the party at Star Island, went right up to the person whose party it was. You interrupted his game, bummed a cigarette off of him and turned around like he didn't even matter. If you can walk in, like Roger Kipling says, man, walk in the room with Kings or whatever, but, but still have the, the, the common touch. What are we talking about? Yeah. You know, it's like when Martin Luther King Jr., they say he can go from the pulpit or Harvard uh, down to the pool hall mm. and still communicate the same message, but in a different format. Mm-hmm. That's you that's know? you living in your audacity. Mm. That's you living mm. into living mm. in your audacity to know that I can talk to this person. This person is just a person like me, Nate. Right. They might got a little bit more money, but they still got to have conversation like everybody right. else. Listen, my daddy used to tell me, he's like, does that person pay my bills? And I'd be like, no, nah, but Michael Jordan, he's like, then turn the TV off because <laughs> we don't got time for that. We got other stuff to do, right? He was like, he would say that, you know, he was, he was real. He was just like, you know, because, but I think also because for him, his, his, the way he framed it for me was he grew up in a world where famous black people lived in black neighborhoods because that's what was required and that's the community we had so it was he was like oh that you know he would mention like oh so and so i'm like yeah no no he was like oh man she used to play she used to beat us in 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 in, in basketball back in the day man that's why she's the greatest tennis player of all time because she used to beat us and uh, but this was before you know uh serena and venus but you know um so there was a kind of familiarity with people we just don't have anymore mm-hmm. And we put these people on pedestals, but it's like, nah, man, Kanye's a human being because he having that break. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know what I mean? So it's like he can come up here in front with all this when he like announced to be president with that bulletproof vest and all this other shenanigans. This white shenanigans you're dealing with, as my student says, these white shenanigans, you can do that. But real talkers, the only people who are gonna save you are the people who know what you're going through. That's true. Because they would drop you. you know? They really will. Right. When he's no longer financially necessary. Yep. Goodbye. 
or not even necessary. Well, he's not financially beneficial. They can be like, goodbye. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yep. That's why you got to have people to knock your hustle. Yes. And keep it. Listen, I'm sure y'all have, you all probably have this conversation. We have it uh, in some of my uh, uh, groups of color uh, at the university, AKA therapy. That's what we'll call that. <laughs> um, it's like, he lost his mind when he lost his mama. Hmm. You know what I mean? He lost his mind when he lost his mama. Um, and he surrounded himself with people who are just, they're not going to tell him no. And when they do, he he probably just gets rid of them. That's why when he, remember he had that, I don't know if you saw, he had that fight with my, the dude Van on um, TMZ when he was just like coming out of that, that crazy space. And they were, arg- these two brothers were arguing. Everybody's like, yeah. And I'm like, but y'all don't even see what's happening. Yeah, you're right. This brother's caring for him and ain't nobody helping him. You know what I mean? And that's how it go. That's how it go. It do. It do. I'm sorry. I probably talk y'all ear off tonight. But we enjoyed every single minute. Every yes. single Likewise. Minute. Appreciate y'all. And and thank you so much for coming in and agreeing to talk with us uh, on on all of your all of your work. Um, and we hope that we can continue on with this conversation. And who knows whatever else that it is that you create. We hope that we can be able to go and see it in person. And if you all are out there in the world, somewhere near Savannah, Georgia, we uh, hope that you can make make it to the Telfair Museum uh, before January 17th to view his work, Heavy is the Crown. Do you have anything else coming up in the in the future that people can be on the lookout for? Yeah, I was supp- I'm, I'm supposed to be doing a solo show in Luxembourg at my dealer there, and I think another show in Dubai. Yeah. But in the States, I'm doing... Um, another solo museum show in the fall back in my home city louisville kentucky at a museum called the kentucky museum of arts and craft um i think i might be showing the new bleach tapestries i'm not sure yet Mm. um and then i I might be doing a show in new york but um i have to figure that out but i got all you know what if i do another show in if i do a show in new york we should do another uh we should do a podcast because then I can yes. we can talk about some of the new work for real. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> if it ends up that I have that show in the fall, let's do another one. All right, yeah. most definitely. I like, I like this. This is fun. Well, yep. we have fun too. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Yeah, I appreciate y'all. Be safe out there in these streets and and walking around New York City and. We can't wait to see whatever else that comes up, and we want you to get them stamps on that passport. Listen, I'm trying. And I know it is hard work, but thank you for doing the work. And oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I've been doing it for a little bit, but I'm, I'm gonna keep going. Yes, yes. And we're always here. We're always here. Always talk about all the things. All the things. Thank you so much. Have a lovely night, y'all. Have a nice. Have a nice night, family. All right. Peace. Good, good night. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.